1: I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues.
0: We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture.
1: Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens.
0: Dr. David Bell retired last year from his position as a consultant psychiatrist at the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust, where he worked for 25 years. He's also the former president of the British Psychoanalytic Society. While he was in the governor role at the Tavistock through a series of events which we cover today, Dr. Bell discovered that something was going terribly wrong in the Children's Gender Identity Development Service, or GIDS. Something I didn't know before speaking to Dave is that the broader Tavistock service had an established reputation for excellent psychotherapeutic treatment. So clinicians who applied to work there were expecting to join the ranks of the most thoughtful and knowledgeable psychotherapists in the UK. Those young and inexperienced clinicians who happened to get funneled into GIDS landed in a very different kind of treatment setting. They started raising their complaints and getting nowhere. So they started to trickle in one by one to tell Dr. Bell their stories. Not only were they feeling ill-equipped to provide proper, thorough care to kids with very complicated backstories, but they were also getting a clear message from their direct chain of command. Concerns were not going to be properly addressed, and in fact, there was a culture of fear about raising these issues, and clinicians felt a very strong pressure to simply get through their humongous caseloads without rocking the boat. In 2018, Dr. Bell described all of this in a highly critical report on the GIDS, which became part of a chain of events, including some critical involvement from our former podcast guests, Marcus and Sue Evans, which led to the judicial review, that's the Kiara Bell case, then the thorough external CAS review, and the CAS review's recent decision to close down the GIDS. So please settle in for this incredible episode with Dr. David Bell. Hi Stella, how are you today? I'm very well. How are you Sasha? I'm great. We're so happy to have Dave Bell on our program. Welcome to the show.
2: Thanks.
1: So where do we begin, Dave? What what first got you into psychiatry, psychology, this whole field?
2: Well, it's uh that would be a long story that would take <laughs> a great deal of time and it depends, you know, how deep you want to go, but um I um, you know, qualified as a doctor in nineteen seventy-three. That's a long time ago. Um, and during my psychiatric training I was very interested uh, during my medical training, rather, I was very interested in psychiatry. But once I I did psychiatry, it, it put me off because it was very highly medicalized. It was very much to do with our the uh uh, idea that psychiatric disorders are, are brain disorders, and very little interest in um, the psychology of the person. So it put me off, and I got rather involved in anti-psychiatry. You know, I read the works of Lang and various others. Um, but then, um, somewhat later, after I'd uh, travelled abroad, I went to work in Africa for a few years. After I qualified, I came back, and I worked in a psychiatric hospital. Uh, And it was one of those old-fashioned asylums uh, on the South Coast. And um, the consultant who I had, there just was very pleased if I wanted to talk to the patients. So I started just talking to patients, and I got very, very uh, interested again. And then I um, went to the Morsley Hospital, where I trained as a psychiatrist. And whilst I was there, I met a consultant Uh, who was a psychoanalyst called Murray Jackson, who was very interested in understanding people with psychosis. And I saw him interview a patient and my life changed because he was able to bring a patient down from a delusional state and get them to talk about what was really upsetting them and worrying them. And seeing that transformation, I realized that's what I want to do. So then I started to train as a psychotherapist and then as a psychoanalyst, and I remained interested in very complex and ongoing and difficult cases. Uh, I've never been particularly I've never been convinced by the biological account of psychiatry. And I've never been convinced that psychotropic medication is helpful. There's a lot of evidence now coming out from UCL from the um, critical psychiatry unit to support that position. So then I trained as a psychoanalyst and, um at the end of my training, I worked at a hospital which was a therapeutic community called the castle uh, so I got my first consultant job there and there I got very interested, of course, in institutions and group dynamics and which they were very interested in there, but I also worked with very, very seriously disturbed patients. I then came to the Tavistock and was appointed as a consultant there, and not a few some years after I was appointed, I became um, I founded and I created a unit for providing um, psychotherapy for very seriously disturbed patients who had complex and enduring problems over much of their lives. Many psychiatric patients, if you really ask them, you'll find they've been disturbed since they were at least adolescent. This idea that suddenly they've got an acute depression rather evaporates if you talk to people. So I founded that unit. Um, And it was very successful when we used to see patients for a number of years in individual and group psychotherapy. And it was in that context in the Tavistock where I became a governor of the trust.
1: And when did you become a governor and were you involved with the gender identity development services?
2: Well, uh, it might be helpful for people to understand what a governor is first. I was
0: going to ask, as the American in the bunch here. (laughs) A
2: a governor uh, is is a kind of um, parallel system of governance that uh, all NHS trusts have. Um, And it's um, a body that consists of uh, staff from the trust, but also people from the community. So people representing, in our case, uh, Camden and Islington uh, uh North Camden, Islington, London, rest of London, and rest of England. So a number of p- people who were um representing um the community that we serve. And then there was a trade union representative, there were representatives of other you know what we might call stakeholders, and then there were staff representatives. And I was there were uh, uh, I was the there were three staff representatives. One was trade union Representative. Um, one was admin and technical, and I was the uh, sort of called at the time senior clinical, but I think the senior was unnecessary. So I was a clinical um, uh, and uh, academic staff representative. And I served two terms. So I ser- each term was three years. I served my first term, sort of, I don't know, probably about. Uh, i don't know probably early about 2012 something like that uh and then um uh i served a second term and that second term was from about 2016 i would guess i'm guessing a bit but that gives you a rough idea um to about uh 2000 must be in 2015 to 2018 and it was in that and I had no connection with the gender service I was working in the adult department but I was very concerned even then about the gender service because it seemed to me there was a very glossy rather idealized version going around but I didn't really understand what it was that they did and um I also picked up a sense in which people didn't want to discuss it. So At one point, we tried to have a scientific meeting in which we might have some discussion and invite uh, someone else to come and talk to us who had been thinking about it a long time, but had a different view. And I thought rather naively that we could have a little bit of a discussion and debate. And I was told that wasn't right, that we didn't need to have anyone come into the Trust to discuss this who wasn't a member, who wasn't already on the JID service. So there was obviously a lot of anxiety about mm-hmm. debating about this. And I raised it many times within the, the trust about trying to have a meeting or find out more. And people were interested, but somehow, and this is not blaming anyone, this is a very typical institutional dynamic, it never quite happened. Mm. So I w- was concerned. I think I had a reputation in the trust for being one of the very senior clinicians, because I'd been there for a long time. By that time, I'd been there over 20 years. And um, I was uh, also a former president of the British Psychoanalytic Society. Um, So I was sort of known for being committed to the mission values of the trust, particularly psychoanalytic values. And I think that's why people approached me.
0: Can I ask a question, a, a broader question about the Tavistock at the time, you know, you described yourself as always having been quite skeptical of the biological basis for psychiatric disorders. Aside from the JID service, was the Tavistock kind of operating in line with your philosophy of taking more of this kind of depth psychoanalytical perspective? No, completely,
2: completely. That's, okay, that's why I was okay. happy there. We, we, the, um, the Tavistock is basically known for three things: that's psychoanalysis, so a psychoanalytic attitude to Uh. psychological suffering Um, child psychotherapy is a very major part of the Tavistock as well and then an interest in families both from an analytic and from a systemic point of view and an interest in institutions but all these have in common the idea that whatever is manifest is only a manifestation and underneath it there are deeper processes that it takes time to understand so of course at the level of individuals, it's what's you know not not so conscious, and understanding whatever symptoms present as being a compromise between the need to address something and also the the terror and fear of of addressing things that are deeper, so the tavistock one hundred per cent we we didn't prescribe at all, we weren't opposed to prescribing. we wouldn't have stopped patients taking tablets or whatever if they felt they were helping, but it wasn't part of what we did
0: okay. That's very helpful, and that really creates the contrast, the juxtaposition against what you started noticing about asking questions about the jid service and this kind of magical theory that they had. So, so pick it up from there. So you you realize that there's really not a lot of debate, and then also just as the institution chugs along, there, w- there just happened to not be any further meetings. There was Am no I getting debate. the story right?
2: There was no debate. Th- not, not just there was no debate and no discussion, and um, very little interest in exploring um, Mm. it more openly, apart from, in in a funny kind of way, just affirming what was going on. Um, So what happened was that perhaps, you know, I I don't really know, but perhaps, because of people knowing a little bit about me, I was approached originally by one person, who was a senior uh, therapist at JITS. Um, And uh, that person was a child psychotherapist. And um, that person, I'm being sort of cautious because I have to keep things slightly anonymous. So he approached me and um, raised very, very serious worries about the JITS service. After he approached me, another person approached me, and then another, and then another, and then another, until in the end, 10 people came to see me, which amounted to just over a third of the total staff of the London-based service. I say London-based because it was also a service in Leeds, which at that time I had no contact with. And um, I interviewed them all. And one of the things I first noticed was that none of them, except for one... Wanted to be come and see me in my room at the Tavistock. They're all frightened. If they were seen coming into my office, they might be they might be um they might suffer in some way. Uh, the managers might say, What were you talking to David Bell about? What are you up to? So they came and saw me privately in my consulting room. And um
0: and presumably, they don't know that each other is talking to you because of this kind of secret. Oh, well, they I met did them individually,
2: And what right. happened was that, like, I met the first person, and he must have told the others I had a very helpful conversation okay. with Dave. Okay. So yeah, you know, they so they did know
0: once once well, they I realized met you them. were sympathetic, I met them, I guess. you know,
2: more than one person at a time.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they realized you were sympathetic, and then started to come to you. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Keep, keep going. Uh, so then uh, they came ask, to me. And, could, could I yeah.
1: ask, Did they um, had they approached others? Or were you the first and only oh, well, person? that's a very important
2: question. I mean, they had. They'd approached their immediate managers. They'd approached the head of the service. They'd approached the medical, Some, not all of them had approached all these people, but these are all the people who've been approached. They'd approached the child safeguarding lead for the trust, Sonia Appleby. She'd been approached. And she was independently inquiring into the situation. Um, And they'd also approached the trust um, speak-up champion, um, who'd taken no action at all. Speak-up champion is a person who's supposed to protect people who want to make complaints or raise concerns so they can freely raise their concerns. Um, The speak-up champion had been... um, Approached about this. So they've been, they had, uh, it's very important you say that because sometimes people think, well, what are they doing coming straight to me without approaching their, um, you know, taking the appropriate, um, approaching the appropriate people. But the other thing was that they were very frightened of talking to people. So they had raised these things, but they soon got the message. because one of the therapists who spoke to me was gay and he was, um, a gay man, and he was very, very concerned about a child who he thought was gay or struggling with the feelings of being homosexual, and that this wasn't being addressed. but when he raised this, he was taken off the case, and there was also told he was an, he was an angry gay man, of course he no longer works for the organization, so they were very frightened, so although they had tried to approach they probably Approached and then realized that there was a message, you know, that we're seeing you as transphobic. So they didn't want to discuss it anymore.
1: And what sort of time frame was this? I'm kind of thinking, I wonder, did the first person approach the first, I'm only guessing, and who knows, the first person who's effectively blowing the whistle, approaching the first line manager, would that be 2015, 2016? And then by the time they came to you, it was a few years later. Yeah.
2: I couldn't say, they approached me um, in, uh, I think my report was 2018. So they approached me, um, I think, between about January, something like that, or November, and summer. So between November 2017 and summer 2018, because I wrote my report in 2018.
1: Funny, I was doing my film in London in in two thousand and eighteen. Trans kids, it's time to talk, and we wanted to interview the Tavistock, and we wanted to interview Polly Carmichael and other just other people from it. And we went to great lengths to get interviews from from the Tavistock. On you know, you know, in fairness, they said whatever we say will be weaponized. But everywhere we went, we heard the Tavistock is in disarray. The Tavistock is in disarray, and we we didn't know anything other than that's what everybody was telling us. And uh, we've never got the interview, Such is life.
2: And so take it from, so there. So, to from there. Do you want me to tell you about the concerns that they raised? Yeah. Because there were so many, it would take up the rest of the meeting. But Oh, my God. Um, they were very s- similar, the concerns that they raised. And this is what I interviewed them. I took notes on all the interviews. And then I f- put that into report. But, you know, d- just to go through some of them, I won't be able to go through all of them.
0: Right, just a few.
2: Yes. Well, the first one was the the caseload. As
0: mm-hmm. you know, the
2: service has increased from being, you know, between 50 and 100 to being uh, 2,700. Um, so the whole service was... Um, under huge pressure to push these cases through.
1: Did you say there's about uh, 30, did, did you say there's about thirty or thirty-five clinicians or something that were running it
2: and they were covering two thousand? I can't remember I don't know the exact number. I just know I was told that the number that came to me was somewhere between a quarter and a third. Wow. That's phenomenal. Sorry, keep going. So, uh, so the first thing was that the 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 caseload. So um, they had caseloads of up to one hundred and forty cases, hundred and forty cases. So one of the clinicians I remember very well saying to me, as she was a family therapist, and she said, you know, she could think of, um, you know, a different service that she worked in, and if there was a family, say five years ago. And you said something about the family; she wouldn't remember. But if you said, "Oh, it was the one where the father died quite suddenly in a car accident," to, oh, and she'd be able to unpack who was in the family, what the problems were. It would all—that's the way it does. She said these fam, these cases, she couldn't remember anything about any of them, because first of all, it was unmanageable to have that number of cases. Secondly, the, a lot of them had the same story because they were scripted. That is, they'd gone online, they'd learned a script, they knew what to say in order for, to get the right diagnosis, because they were coming not to address their mental health problems, but to get the ticket to puberty blockers. That's what they were coming for, because the service was a gateway to medical treatment. So this therapist was saying he couldn't possibly remember the cases, because they were all the same. Uh, in terms of what they said, and he didn't get, didn't have sufficient time to get past that before having to deal with another case. The second thing was that um they raised concerns about consent, they thought consent was being handled very badly, and that the children weren't really having any idea of what the long term implications were of what they were being involved in. The third thing was that the service was what's called we call an affirmation service. That is, if a child came with gender what we now call gender dysphoria, and they would obviously say, "I'm trans," they were immediately affirmed without further thought, and we all you know, many of us think that's a totally inappropriate clinical stance to take towards a patient. They thought that these kids you know had complicated, often long-term difficult problems. But it was very difficult to get near those problems because there wasn't sufficient time and they didn't think there was sufficient interest in the service to get to grips with these problems, which would take time. You'd have to build up a relationship of trust and you'd have to get past the script. Um, They thought that many of these kids um, suffered from other problems such as uh, trauma in the family, um, autism. We know that up to thirty-five percent are on the autistic spectrum. Um, the others, a very substantial number, suffered from what we now call what we call internalized homophobia. That is, they recognised, say, it's a girl. She recognises that she feels attracted to girls, feels disgusted about that, and may even have the thought, maybe I'm not a girl. Many uh, lesbian girls feel that in, in part of their development. But of course, now that this was possible to think, maybe I really am a girl, this was regarded as a way out of being gay, out of being a lesbian girl, or out of being so confused about who they were or what it meant. So they were also a very, very substantial number. Um, And one of the clinicians described the most complex and difficult cases they'd ever dealt with. I think that wasn't necessarily a judgment on the degree of mental disorder. But how difficult it was, given the cultural support and the support of the service for affirmation. Um, and the, the the model was to see them for four to six sessions spaced out over many months. So you couldn't really form a therapeutic alliance. But some of them, I was informed, were seen substantially less and occasionally only once, and then referred for puberty blockers. So... Um, Maybe that's uh, some of the concerns they raised. But the interesting thing was they all raised rather, you know, similar concerns. They also, um, there were very inexperienced staff seeing these these cases. So there are people who had only just completed their clinical psychology training, certainly had not, you know, had the experience of working over long periods with disturbed children. They also complained that the, um, there was a, an anti-psychotherapy atmosphere. Like if one talked about, I think the senior therapists managed better, but the ones who were junior were interested in psycho psychotherapy. Or, said they were mocked. They were told, "Oh, don't give us all that talk about the unconscious, all that talk about, you know, all um, that psychotherapy babble." And they thought they come to the table for that reason. We hope you're
0: enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high-quality content for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us.
1: Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit RethinkIME.org to learn more.
0: And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access
1: to weekly transcripts and special Q&As and you can join our listener community.
0: Now back to the show. Yeah, th- that's so pernicious because as you said that's why people were attracted to the Tavistock and I hear that line of thinking a lot, both inside and outside the gender world. I mean, I think all of the depth orientations have gotten a very bad reputation and I'm not exactly sure why, but Um, Were these clinicians, the the young and experienced clinicians, were they being kind of explicitly trained on this affirmation model? Or do you think it was more of just unspoken messages that they got about trying to dig a little bit deeper or, you know, of course, the lack of time? Or was it an explicit, like, this is the affirmation model? this is One of the things they complained
2: about was that there was no model. They didn't feel they're ever taught a clinical model. So there wasn't a the- so, so so they didn't really understand what it was they were doing. Um, but they picked up that what they were supposed to do was affirm. I mean the other things they complained about were that as part of this was the um inappropriate influence of Um, campaigning ideological organizations which had strong connections with JID, such as Mermaids, and another organization called uh, Gendered Intelligence. And one of the directors of the service worked for one of these organizations. So they were very deeply involved. Uh, So the whole service was very um, drawn in to this... um, a very what we would now of course think of as a, a very extreme position as regards how to treat yeah. these children, and certainly they were very those, those services, like mermaids and so and so on, they were very opposed to sort of trying to understand what was going on. They saw that mm. as digging around and you know not affirming the child so um that was you know another major problem also there were some of them were very concerned about the way the parents were treated. If the parents didn't agree, they were isolated and alienated from from the service. And they thought, God, we need the parents there to tell us what's been going on in this child's life. But if the parents weren't automatically agreeing, they were often completely left out of the clinical discussion. And of course, there were a group of parents around about the same time who complained to the trust about this.
0: And when you wrote the report, wh- where did the report go? And I guess what was the outcome of that?
2: Well, uh, I wrote my report. I contacted um, the um, chairman of the board and the chief executive. And I told them before that summer that I'd had these concerns raised that, that really worried me. And I. Was going to write a report, and, and they said that's fine. However, at the end of that summer, when they saw the report, they tried to stop me from sending it to the governors. And um, I was at that time, I, w- I was threatened. Uh, that you know, the implication was that if I pursued with showing this to the governors, they there were certain matters. That it was a bit vague that they might be able, certain kind of actions they might be able to take against me. But that was the first time where I took legal advice. And the legal advice was very clear that it was my role as a governor to send this report to the governors. And if I didn't, in fact, I would be reneging on my responsibility. So I overrode the threat and sent the report to the governors anyway. And of course, I sent it to the board. This was... That summer was just when I was coming to the end of my term as a governor, so um I was at the meeting where my report was briefly discussed. That wasn't wrong because such a big report could not really be discussed in one meeting, so the decision was to set up um a review of the service to be run by the medical director and one or two others who I don't remember, but including a representative. From the Governors, um so that's what happened. A review was carried out about the service um I tried to find out about the review because I was very concerned that the people who complained to me were not being interviewed because they wouldn't because they would need to have guaranteed anonymity to be interviewed. so I did my best to find out what the terms of reference are told, but I was told I was no longer to be involved in this. But of course i did find out things from talking to people eventually the re- the review w- was um brought to the board and to the governors dinesh sinna you know, then the medical director was responsible for that but it wasn't really a proper review because all it did was talk to people it didn't the review didn't say how many patients come to the service what's the outcome for those patients how many get this how many get that what's the follow up that's partly because Again, one of the things that was complained about, there was no follow-up. No one knew what happened to these children. All the clinicians I spoke to regarded this as an experimental treatment, uh, which it was. Um, and um, there was no follow-up. No one knew what happened. And a lot of the kids who reached 17 went to the adult service anyway, and we don't know what happened to them. So, um, sorry, I've lost my my... Oh yes. So,
0: so the review is done, I guess, by by somebody at the, the review
2: was merely based upon talking to people. Now, of course, the majority of people who he talked okay. to said what a good service it was, and then he talked to a few who didn't agree with that.
0: But who was in charge of the review? Can you just medical clarify the medical that? director of the Jids?
2: No, the medical Excuse director me. of the trust.
0: Of the trust. Okay, go ahead.
2: Uh, so that review was a very poor review. Um, and in essence, although it did raise some uh, some uh, criticisms, it, the um, the chairman of the board and the chief executive considered it as a kind of exoneration of Jits.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And at that time, I was no longer uh, a member of the governors. So, but Marcus Evans was now. Marcus Evans had worked in the trust for many many years probably as long as me, but he'd retired, or ordinarily retired from the Trust. But he was on the Governors as one of the other kinds of stakeholders, um, as, as being a member of the community that the Trust serves. So he was Rest of London. And he was also very, very concerned, also because his wife, Sue Evans, had, had worked on Jid's many, many years before, and she had raised similar concerns many years ago. Also, we found, by the by, that... Uh, The medical director David Taylor, I think in 2010 or earlier, had raised serious concerns which were not noted. And also in 2015, an external consultant was asked to look at the service. And that external consultant said that the service should immediately put a cap on referrals because they weren't managing the numbers. But that again was ignored. So Marcus knew of all these things. And when my, when the review was discussed in the governor's, he was very, very concerned about the review not addressing things. Subsequent to that, my report was leaked to the press, to the Sunday Times. I don't know who leaked it, but, and of course, at the beginning, I was very concerned about this but actually in the end i think it was a very good thing it was handled in a very good way by the sunday times andrew gilligan who looked into many issues of great public concern um and um so in the end although i was horrified at the time it was a very good thing once it came into the press then the trust had to say something and they said some very defamatory things about me they said that i didn't have the qualifications to write this review they also said that the, the cases were made up. They were hypothetical. I complained about that. So that then they, they said they weren't hypothetical, but they weren't representative. Because that's meaningless. You know, If you had an operating theatre in which a nurse raised a problem about some of the children going through theatre, getting the wrong treatment, she wouldn't say, well, it's only two children, so it doesn't matter. It's not representative. So And it was this way of dealing with me that led Marcus to feel that his position was no longer tenable. So he resigned from the governors. And, of course, I think he made it very clear why he was resigning, and that was because the issues that I raised were not being taken seriously, and also he was concerned that I was being publicly undermined by the trust. And, of course, um, there's no point in resigning quietly as a, what's the point in that? So obviously the press wanted to know, and he told them his story. And um, I've been involved ever since. Wow. I um
1: I remember, I know where you're at. I remember when Andrew Gilligan was releasing those articles in the Sunday Times, and every Sunday I'd be kind of like, what's coming out now? And it was around about, if I'm right, February, March, April 2019 or so, that these articles, like I think 35 clinicians were judged to have left or
2: something. Um, the, the Oh, yes. Yeah. So, the, yeah. the service had the biggest turnover of any service within, within the Trust. Eventually all the child psychotherapists left. Oh. And there was a huge, one of the reasons there was such a huge turnover was one, because their work wasn't manageable. So anyone could see that they were dealing with difficult children and the model, there was no model, but trying to you know, deal with this number of kids was not clinically appropriate. But the other reason was that many of these uh, young psychologists applied for a job. As far as they were concerned, they were applying for a job at the Tavistock. So they thought this was psychoanalytic psychotherapy and family therapy. And they got and then once they got to JIDS, I saw there was none of this. Because the then director had said to me, which I reported in my report, that it wasn't a clinical service. I asked her what that meant. How could it not be a clinical service? So what she meant was it was an assessment service. But my view is you cannot assess an individual without getting clinically involved. So they left because it wasn't what they'd, they'd come to do. But also because the workload was just unmanageable. And for some of them it didn't make sense. And for some of them, of course, they were very concerned about the inappropriate way these children were being treated.
1: And then the following like a few months maybe that following November, Kira Bell, if I'm right, would have taken her her judicial review oh, yes, on right. that. Yeah. So like you know, Andrew Gilgan was letting out the articles. Everybody was kind of, What is going on? Somebody like me who was very much following and Sasha we were like, what is going mm. actually on? Because it's the biggest, am I right, it's the biggest gender service in the world for children, as far as I know it is. Yes, it? I think it must be. Yeah. And then, Kirabel, Bell, that case started. Were you there when that happened, and how did that land?
2: I can't remember. I retired in 2021. Okay, so you were there. January.
1: Yeah, because it was November 2019, or December 2019, that yeah. Kira Bell yeah.
2: took the case, beg- oh, uh, the case, I was there, I was involved as a governor. And it was Kira Bell and an anonymous parent. That's right. There were two people, the judicial review. And um, just maybe to explain that a judicial review is a particular form of, in- of inquiry. Kira Bell was not raising her own case about medical, you know, to say she'd been badly treated or anything like that. Right. she was raising was a very specific issue that she didn't think that children and young people had the capacity uh, to consent. Yes, I was there because I couldn't participate in the judicial review because I was an employee of the trust. I did uh, participate in in, in some of the subsequent legal proceedings after I'd left the trust. Mm
0: Mm-hmm
2: so yes then there was the the judicial review which found that children weren't able to consent uh and of course that was a very serious uh blow to the, to the jit service and to the trust they the trust appealed that and they won their appeal
1: and did many people come to you at that point saying actually david you were right or did many people come over, you know, within the within the trust, I would have thought people started thinking, which side am I on here?
2: Well, I think the people I mean, the most important person was really was Sonia Appleby. Who had to be cautious. But I knew that she had the same concerns all along. Secondly, she's the
1: child just for everybody else, she's the child safeguarding leader. She's the Is that what she was?
2: She's safeguarding child lead for the trust. And as you know, she later took an action against the trust because she was, um, she suffered, uh, can't think of the right word. She suffered. uh, She was
1: kind of sidelined, I gather. Intimidation.
2: Intimidation. She was intimidated because of concerns that she'd raised. Um, But then there were the people, I would say the people in the, Traditional Tavistock, so that would be like the adult department and the Portman Clinic. The Portman Clinic uh, deals with people who have um, committed, you know, often serious criminal offences, um, or um, and, pe- and, so- and some people suffering from quite serious, you know, sexual problems. So uh, the Portman Clinic and the adult and, and my colleagues, most of my colleagues in the adult department, supported my position. Um, And um, some, you know, would come to me and say so. Um, Some wrote letters in my support, a letter in my support. Um, But many of them, I thought, didn't want to um, go further than that. Uh, They had many years to go. They weren't near retirement as I was. And, you know, uh, so they supported me in what ways they felt able to. And I was very grateful for that. It meant a lot to me.
0: So then the next, I think, big thing, was the the cass review which of course came after the kirabell ruling after the appeal can you just uh fill us in about the the cass review and kind of of course the the Tavistock is going to be shut down the the Jid service is going to be shut down so just help us understand that and what what do you think the implications are there
2: well i obviously i was very pleased that um you see, I think my report is the publicity, and then various other organisations and groups of people raising concerns. So it sort of was a a gathering storm, if you like, about what was going mm-hmm. on in the service. Mm-hmm. And this came to the attention of uh, obviously of the NHS, but also higher than that. I think there must there were people obviously. Um, high up in the civil service and so on, uh, who were very concerned to hear about this. So, I mean, I don't know how these things are decided, but they must be decided at quite a high level. There, there was a decision to have a review of the service. And um, it took a while to appoint someone. And um, I was very pleased with who they appointed, because I thought Hilary Cass had, you know, Dame Hilary Cass, who was a former... President of the Royal College of Pediatrics pa- of and Child Health, we really couldn't have a better person. I knew she'd be fair-minded, and also she, hasn't, she hadn't been—I think—that involved with all this before. Before, so she brought her yeah. mind to it as well. So she carried yeah. out what has been um, the largest review of gender services worldwide. I don't think there's been anything approaching this. She took—I've lost track—but probably a couple of years. And she's still working. it. She's only produced so far her interim report. Um, see, one of the things that the clinicians had said to me, you know, was that, and in fact, the director of the service said the same. The clinicians complained to me that some of the cases were treated as if, some of these children with complex problems were treated as if they were, in inverted commas, a straightforward case.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, you know, I've been a psychiatrist for a very, very long time. And I don't know of anything that I would call a straightforward case (sighs) of anything. There is no such thing as a straightforward case. Yeah. But they were worried about this term. And then when I spoke to the director at the time, Polly Carmichael, she said there were straightforward cases. Mm. How can there be a straightforward case of a child who's in this terrible state of conflict about who they are? How can that ever be straightforward? So I think the CAS report. Interim report has put an end to that kind of thinking that there could ever be such a thing as a straightforward case. And I I haven't looked at the CAS review um, before this interview. So it might be that I don't get this completely right, um, you know, the way things are worded and so on. But I think in the main, it's very clear that the findings of the CAS interim review support the serious concerns that were brought to me by the clinicians and the concerns I expressed in my report. That is that the affirmation model was the wrong model, that no child should be affirmed. You know, we don't, as clinicians, if someone comes with anorexia, we don't affirm what they say about their weight. And interestingly, I was talking to um, uh, someone from the LGB Alliance the other day and I was saying, but maybe you would affirm, you know, and I say a young adolescent who said they were gay. He said, absolutely not. Why would I do that? He said, they're young. If they say they're gay, I don't even know what they mean. They're developing. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're going to become a gay man or gay woman, but I wouldn't say, oh, yes, or well, that's good. I just say, it's interesting that you feel that. Let's see what rolls out or what you're feeling or thinking. So there's something Mm of affirming is a good example Mm -hmm. of how an ideological movement completely contaminated the capacity to think. So Cass has put an end to that, that these children must have been affirmed. Secondly, she's agreed that the evidence for puberty blockers, and we already knew this from things that have gone up on the NHS website, that there's virtually no evidence that they're... um, they 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 of uh, clinical benefit. There's now some evidence that that, that they may be harmful, but also there's considerable concern that we don't know what happens to children who take puberty blockers, because the way I would put it, Cass doesn't say this, but I think she would agree, that young people are not video machines that you can just press pause and then start again. It, it doesn't work like that a child, say, at the age of 11 or 12, or whatever, their physiology, their neurophysiology, their psychology, and their social being is all ready for puberty. So you can't just put pause and then say, you can have puberty in three years' time. It doesn't mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Also, there is great concern about effects on bone density and also effects on brain and cognitive function. And all these flagged-up concerns which have been uh, one of them came from the um, one of the national leaders on clinical evidence. Um, so, But these never seem to sort of filter through. So again, Cass has underlined that there are reasons to be concerned about puberty blockers. And I think the impression I get from a report that is that they should be very, very, very rarely used, if at all. But the other thing we also know, and this is prior to the report about puberty blockers, is that when they were started, The minority of children persisted. Most came off them. But currently, as it was then, 98% of children who went on puberty blockers stayed on them. So going on puberty blockers was not just an interim, even though that's the wrong kind of thinking, but it was putting them on the pathway to opposite sex hormones and surgery. So the weight, the ethical weight on that juncture is huge because of the implications. And I think Cass is very well you know, aware of that. Also, she's made it very clear that these children, and I'm using my words, but I think it's more or less what she says, have a kind of right to be treated as any other child with psychological problems. That is to be treated holistically in terms of who they are, any other problems they have, their other psychological problems, their family, their social context, and so on where she felt that JIDS, all this was being was shorn off. Because the problem was, if you have a national service, if a child has multiple problems, which these many of these children have, and they get sent to a gender service, that act badges them now as a gender problem. Then the service addresses a thing called a gender problem instead of just addressing a child who has difficulties. And that already sets the pathway. So one of the judges in the judicial review said rightly that one of the reasons so many children stay on puberty blockers is because once, once you're on them, it's already becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And as one you know, um, person put it to me, I think very well, that if you're terrified of puberty, which these kids are, and you think it's becoming, for example, a woman is a disgusting, horrible, terrible thing, which is what you might feel, you know, that idea of dress or periods or so on. And someone says, we can stop that. That clinician is colluding with the disgust. And also, once you're on them, the more longer you're on them, the more terrified you are because the whole system is supporting the idea that puberty is a bad thing, that you
0: can't be helped. It's a big avoidance strategy that the clinician is colluding with.
2: Exactly, exactly. But one mustn't think that, you know, you have to remember that these children are in terrible pain and they need very, very careful help. So Cass has also supported the view that these children have multiple difficulties and must be looked after in a service in which all those difficulties can be addressed and not just seen through the the the, the crystal of it all being a gender issue. And the... JIT service did not have the capacity to do that. Lastly, uh, casting a national service for gender issues is not the right model, which is certainly what I thought. That there shouldn't be a national service for gender issues. That was a, de- a very very big mistake. And one of the problems is this: is that mental health services in the UK are in a very very poor shape because of you. Know, Year on year cuts, you know, cutting in resources. It was all part of, you know, a bigger agenda of neoliberalism and so on, and the cutting back of state resources. Child mental health, child and adolescent mental health, even more so. And even before COVID, child and adolescent mental health services were on their knees. Um, so when they saw children who had multiple difficult problems, if the child said anything about gender, they would think, oh good, we can send them to the Tavistock. Thinking, we were sending them to a national service, not only about gender, but one of the leading psycho you know psychotherapy services, the leading psychotherapy service in the country. Thinking they were sending them to the Tavistock, but they weren't. They were sending them to JIDS, where they wouldn't get any exploration of these other problems, and they certainly wouldn't get psychotherapy. But they were pleased because. They couldn't manage these children. So if we're going to provide services for these children to be looked after in a holistic way, we will need massive resources to do so. You can't just expect CAMS, that's Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service, to do this because they're already under huge strain. I I need to go fairly soon.
1: I want to ask you before you go, if you don't mind, just something you said earlier on, and thank you so much for for, for speaking Um, about affirming the child. I often think the child wants to be, let's say the 10 year old girl wants to be a 10 year old boy. And she doesn't, she hasn't conceptualized what it is to be a 25 year old man or a 35 year old man or a 45 year old man. And so affirming is affirming something for the future. When you're affirming in the present, it's a, it's a kind of a, a very, dangerous thing to do. And it brings me to the point of... Well, it doesn't... Yeah. Well, it brings me to the point just to finish and then... It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. But uh, calling them a trans kid to me is is beckoning them into an adult concept because it's actually only in adulthood that they will be able to transition as such and if they can transition... And so it's kind of bringing them and solidifying a concept in their head, that I think is putting exactly. an adult concept onto a child's shoulders.
2: Well, I absolutely agree with you. Now, obviously, I've talked to a lot of clinicians and I have now seen some uh, people, adults, who who have gone through the service, but I'm not, you know, directly been involved in seeing children and adolescents. But my impression is that a lot of these kids. They're not really saying, "I want if we take the girls because it's now seventy percent of the service uh, was girls, and that was another concern that people had that there wasn't a sufficient interest in inquiring why there'd been this huge explosion, and also why it had moved from being ma- marginally more boys to now being this huge preponderance of girls and um you know that's another subject which you know I've talked about elsewhere because I think it's partly to do with a kind of growing misogyny, and, and which gets into young girls. But I won't go there now. But what you say is very, very important, because these girls don't say, I want to be a boy. They say, either I am a boy. But what they say at another level is, I want to get out of this body. Yes. I, stand yes. I want out, and I want now, and I want it out immediately. I can't bear it a moment longer. Mm-hmm. Say to such a child, well, what do you think it would be like not to be able to have an orgasm? they will say, you know, I can't bear to think about it. They'll they'll scream, don't use that word. Mm -hmm. Say to the child, what do you think it will be like never to have babies? They'll react again with disgust because they can't imagine themselves as being an older female person. So the question makes no sense. So I absolutely agree. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe I just want to say one thing because it's often misunderstood that the Tavistock appealed and won the appeal. But it's very important to understand what that means. The um, court, this was the the Supreme Court, they found that the divisional court didn't have the authority to make the judgment about this issue. That is not the same thing as saying they thought that children and adolescents could consent. It would be rather like, for example, if um, suppose you made a a road traffic offence. And a policeman wrote it down and so on. And then you complained. And the court said, Well, that policeman didn't have the authority to give you that 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 offence. It wasn't his mm-hmm. job. That so doesn't mean you, you didn't commit the offence. Correct. So they weren't yeah. saying that these children can consent. They were saying, and they said in the report, they thought that very serious attention should be paid to consent. But also all the other issues that were raised in the judicial review about the poor governance of JIDS, that is the lack of follow-up, the lack of knowledge about how many had other disorders, uh, and so on, the very poor governance, none of those were part of the appeal. The appeal was very much part of consent, the narrow issue of consent, appropriately, but the other issues that were raised in the judicial review, the judge's great concern about the lack of ordinary clinical governance, they still stand.
0: We're really grateful for your time. We know we, ha- we have to let you rush off. Um, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your perspective on this and all of the work you're doing around this. Thank you so much.
2: It's been a pleasure.
1: And th- thank you for, for bringing it out to the public. It was really important. Yes.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect. And listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
1: Follow us on social media. And if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktor.ee slash widerlenspod.
0: Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.